Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. are doing with craft beer, what people are doing with smaller coffee producers, I was like, we could do something like that with denim, with the history that's here, like, like making something that's of this place, of North Carolina, of the history of denim, but with a modern kind of spin. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to Victor Litvinenko, designer and co-founder of Raleigh Denim Workshop, a manufacturer and purveyor of high-quality handcrafted jeans that have become cult favorites for their fit, wash, construction, and attention to detail. In fact, the label in each pair says, handcrafted in North Carolina by non-automated jean snips. Victor co-founded Raleigh Denim in 2007 with his wife, Sarah Yarborough, and they describe it as an art project, romantic adventure, and American enterprise with a focus on design, process, material, and craft. In addition to traditional jeans making, they've also branched out into furniture and upholstery design and have collaborated on projects with OMA, Bernhardt Design, and Commune Design, among others. Let's get the story from Victor. My name is Victor Litvinenko. I am one of the co-founders and designers at Raleigh Denim Workshop. We are located in Raleigh, North Carolina. We predominantly focus on making super high-end, thoughtfully designed clothing, more jeans than anything, but it's branched out quite a bit. And over the last few years, we've been doing some design work in furniture, textiles, uh, interiors, yeah, that's it. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? What were you like as a kid? I was born in Trenton, New Jersey to, I guess, first generation. My parents are first generation from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my grandparents came over after World War II. We moved to North Carolina when I was maybe a year old. So I've really spent all of my time in Raleigh and suburbs of Raleigh uh, when I was growing up. As a kid, I was probably had like a little bit more energy than I should have and <laughs> was really curious about. Maybe as an adult too, you think? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it still exists. Um, I don't know. I, I remember just being curious about a lot of things and wanting to jump in and wanting to know and wanting to touch things and eat things and 
do things and I, I don't think that's actually changed much i think i have a little bit more clarity of uh, <laughs> why i do those things i guess i don't know were you like one of those kids that always asked why and then when you got yeah. the answer you were like well why but why yeah yeah <laughs> no i mean i like was the the most annoying kid in the world <laughs> in that sense i mean i remember my dad just saying like if you ask me why again, I'm not even going to tell you. And I'd be like, well, how come? <laughs> <laughs> he was not so happy about that, I remember. <laughs> Did you feel connected to your Ukrainian heritage? Not too much, honestly. I mean, we don't don't really have any other family members. Like, my grandparents were here, but they never spoke English. Both my mom's parents spoke a little bit of English. Uh, my dad's parents never spoke English. Uh, no uncles, aunts. All right, so one one uncle, but didn't see him very often. When I was graduating college, the last credit I needed was foreign language, and I didn't want to take foreign language in America. So I found some university in in Ukraine and got them to do a summer session just foreign language. Um, and so I went to Ukraine. I was the first person in our family to ever go back. So my grandparents came over in the. 40s. My parents had, ne had never been. Oh. And I still have tons of family over there. So my last name is Litvinenko, which sounds kind of crazy here, but um, but over there. Is it like Smith? Yeah, it's like Smith. Yeah, it's <laughs> like it's the most common name in the world. So, anyways, growing up, I didn't have too much connection to it, but since then, certainly have, have learned a lot and been over there a bunch of times. So, so when you were an adolescent, a teenager, did you still have all this energy and curiosity? And how did that show up in your creativity, style, and personality? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I think in my personality and style, especially when I was in, in the teenage years, it was, I, I guess I would learn and do, or learn design um, just by doing. I, I don't think I thought too much about what I was doing. It was more like, I just want to do it and do it and do it and do it and learn from it every time. Um, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was confident and comfortable in mediums. And it, I have to get to that point before I can actually start designing the way that we do now, I guess. Um, so it was just more about experiencing the materials, craft, I say craft, like the, the finesse of a medium. Mm -hmm. um, what it, types of things were you exploring in your adolescence? Were you playing around <laughs> with like clay or were you sewing back then? Uh, not sewing, but, but clay, uh, woodworking. I, I really, I remember in eighth grade or ninth grade taking a, a small engines class. And, and that was so fascinating to me. And we were building these little cars and making CO2 cars and, doing all this woodworking and I was really into painting and photography too with no real direction. I mean, I think it was just like a, a motor without a, um, without a steering wheel. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was just like doing as much as I could for the sake of experience, I guess. Um, not much of it was good. I mean, I don't, I don't know that any of it was good. I just, but it's all learning. It. It's all like sort of priming the, the soil. Yeah, I bet that yeah. small engines class totally helps you maintain your machinery now. It does. And I actually, <laughs> the guy that that taught that class, his name's Mr. Coop, and K-O-O-P as in Paul. And I saw him in the grocery store like last year, and I just, I lost my mind. And I was like, Mr. Coop, <laughs> like, you're the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, 
here's the reason I'm able to do what I'm doing. And it was really cool. Man, shop teachers and art teachers, they're the superheroes of society, I think. Man, for me, for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned going over to Ukraine during college, but before we talk about that, I'd like to hear about, you know, when you were in high school, um, thinking about college, what did you think you wanted to get into and why? And then where did you end up? I thought that I wanted to get out of Raleigh. That's about it. Um, <laughs> and I was, I thought that I would want to go to design school, but I actually wanted to get out of Raleigh more than anything. Um, I think that's a common feeling for some kids in high school. Um, but I was, I was really into soccer too. And I was pretty good at it. And I ended up getting a scholarship to a school in Jersey city. And, and I just wanted to be close to New York. So I was like, I don't even care. I'm just going to go. Is um, it like Stockton or something? What's up there? Uh, St. Peter's college. Oh, okay. So I went there really just to get close to the city and ended up getting an internship with a fashion photographer, Fabio Chisola. And I don't know, just kind of got in a little bit to like what was going on in New York at that time through playing soccer in Jersey City. And and Sarah and I actually, she, she went up there at the same time too. She uh, was at NYU. So we ended up being closer up there than we were here. But just at St. Peter's took, you know, the basic first and second year classes after that. It was right when September 11th happened and um, decided to come back to Raleigh and ended up finishing school, uh, university at, at NC State. I really wanted to go to design school at NC State, but my dad was pretty adamant about me studying business or computers. And so I ended up going to business school, which I think is working out all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to um, kind of audit design school classes too. So most of my friends were in the design school. So I was kind of connected to that in a peripheral way. And I had a, I had my own studio in the upstairs of this little house I was living in and, and was making things all the time. I don't know. I, I still kind of wish I went to design school, but I didn't. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, that's sort of a common conundrum. I think as a designer, I wish I had a business education as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure a lot of creative business professionals wish they had been allowed to explore the full extent of their expression in design school as you know I feel like a double major is a is an awesome scenario if you can pull it off but it's not essential everybody can. Yeah. yeah I've had a couple of conversations with the professors at the design school at NC State about that and I, I, I just can't wrap my head around them like teaching all this beautiful design work but not like the students coming out of there not knowing how to pitch an idea or not knowing how to like pitch a project or write a budget or those things that we all have to do to exist in the world uh, in a design field. It's, it's essential. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that Sarah was at the same school as you. Is that, did you meet in college? And can you tell us the story? Yeah, it's a long story. <laughs> um, Sarah and I met in, in Raleigh in, it was our senior year of high school, I guess the summer before our senior year, they were showing the World Cup final soccer game at a little pizza shop. And my best friend was dating her best friend and she showed up and for me, it was love at first sight at halftime of this game, 45 minutes later, later I told my friend I was going to marry her. We <laughs> ended up 
just hanging out that day. Can you pick my lottery numbers? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we ended up just hanging out that day, and we didn't see each other again for a long time. And randomly, my brother won tickets to see Miss Saigon at the Performing Arts Center. And he called and was like, hey, I got four tickets. I'm taking my girlfriend. Do you want to bring somebody? Let's go. And all my friends were at spring break and I like, was not super into going to the beach and doing the spring break thing and so I had Sarah's phone number and I called her I was like hey we haven't talked in a really long time I don't even know if you remember who I am but would you like to go to this thing tonight and she said yeah of course that sounds awesome uh but today's my birthday oh my gosh and, and I've got plans and she called her mom she canceled her plans she came over I cooked dinner I baked her a cake and then we hung out basically every day since then. Oh, that's a beautiful love story. You baked her a cake. That's so crazy. awesome. So that. that was in high school, and you guys were obviously going to different schools. Right. In high school, we were going to different schools, and then we both had committed to the colleges, and she was going to go to NYU, and I was going to St. Peter's. So we had already committed to do those things before that day, before her birthday. So we ended up moving up to New York together, and we're closer there. We lived closer together there than we did in Raleigh. So that was, you mentioned a couple years before 9-11, then 9-11. Did you guys both decide to move back to Raleigh after 9-11? And was that just because it was such a heavy tragedy that it kind of felt better to be close to home? Or uh, It was a heavy tragedy. I mean, living in New York is difficult. Going to school and living in New York is even more difficult. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a lot of things. I mean, it's yeah. expensive. It's all those things. And, like, we've got one of the best design schools in the country here. In-state tuition here is pennies. Cost of living here is pennies. Like, it just made a lot of sense on a lot of levels. So this love story obviously progressed into a profoundly collaborative, creative relationship as well and the founding yeah. of a business. So get us there. Connect those dots for us. <laughs> wow. Um so we came back to Raleigh in 2001, 2002, something like that. Um, and I graduated in 2004 or five. We traveled a good bit. I was going back and forth to Ukraine uh, every summer, I guess, for two or three years. Uh, Sarah was, she like rode her bike from Finland to Prague with her brother and then hitchhiked through Croatia. And oh, so she went Serbia. with you? No, I mean, we kind of just like... You kind of did your own thing. Yeah. We wanted each other to follow our hearts and our dreams and to adventure. And, you know, we kept coming back to each other and kept coming back or we would meet up over there. Or I ended up getting to play soccer in Switzerland for a year. And she came and met me over there for a while. And a lot of travel, a lot of adventure. It was like that time of life where don't really have any responsibilities, don't don't really have anything to lose. Yeah, that's don't really have the any time money. to do it when you're young, yeah. like during college or when you're in your 20s, you can kind yeah. of float around and experiment and try all kinds of different things before you settle down and try to take root somewhere. Yeah. I When we moved back to Raleigh, I was really into cooking. And so this is kind of the, where the philosophy of what we're doing start, or for me started. In college, I wanted a job. I mean, I needed a job, and I wanted to get a job where they would pay me to learn something that I wanted to learn, and cooking was the thing I really wanted to learn. So I ended up getting a job at 
I don't know, one of the best restaurants in Raleigh. Um, just, I walked in and I said, Hey, I want to learn how to cook. And they were like, what do you know? I said, nothing. And <laughs> the chef gave me a broom and he said, sweep the hotline. And I did. And he was like, okay. Like, and I, you know, I swept every single nook and cranny and got every single bit of dust. And he was like, okay, like if you can do, if you do what I tell you to do, you can be here. And after a really short amount of time, I bought all the textbooks for the Culinary Institute of America. And I was super into cooking. Um, and there was actually a jaunt back. I went back to New York after that. And I worked at Nobu in Tribeca for, I don't know, six or eight months. And then ended up coming back to Raleigh, working at this restaurant again. But the chef would have wine tastings every day and with just purveyors that were coming in. And I really wanted to learn about wine. I started making wine. So he would he would let me sit in on the tastings with him. I started buying grapes from Western North Carolina and spending time up in the mountains. I really loved these, like the philosophy of the winemakers that were focused on quality over quantity. Mm. And they were you know, going through their vineyards and clipping off some of the grapes so that the grapes that stayed tasted more concentrated, more interesting. Um, it's a seasonal product. It's a product in quotes. Um, because it is a product, but it's a craft, it's an art. And I, I love the singularity of it. I love that like what one winemaker was doing in their vineyards, in their winery, you, you can't copy it. You could grow the same grapes next door. You could buy the same barrels, but the magic of like what they're doing in their hearts and their hands and their minds is different. And mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or worse. It's that like there's some purity and honesty of like the soul of their work. And that was really interesting to me. So I started buying some grapes, spending time up in the mountains. I was inviting my friends over and we would stomp on the grapes and I'd make this wine in my mom's garage. And Wait, you had friends come over and you guys stomped grapes? Yeah, every year. Yeah, I would, buy, <laughs> I, I would actually buy a ton of grapes. I was working with this professor at Wake Forest University who had a vineyard and we would make wine together every year and compare that sounds like so much fun. It was so much fun. I mean, it's kind of terrifying too. It's one of those things that I didn't know anything about. There wasn't a lot of information on the web. There weren't many books about it. It was like, it was really just a like jump in and, and see how it goes. And that's kind of my, a lot of the way that I <laughs> did things for a long time from when I was a kid until, I mean, even still, but, um, but learned every year, got a little better every year. But while I was spending time up in the mountains, I met these people that used to work in the old denim factories. And during that time I was making wine, I was also I also started sewing and I was making handbags and hats and I would just like sell them at these little craft fairs. Were you grinding your own grains too and like baking <laughs> baking loaves of artisan bread? Like <laughs> I was, yes. <laughs> I, I I love this just like I love making things well I mean you talked about how curious you were as a kid and and how energetic you were so you have all of this curiosity mixed with this boundless energy and sometimes that can be a hindrance but it sounds like you took all of that and put it into learning all kinds of new crafts and using your hands and, and your brain and your body to like make all of these amazing things while I was up in the mountains, I was meeting these people that worked in the denim factories, and and that started like percolating in my head. And then, when you say denim factories, are you talking about textiles, or are you talking about people who were making garments? 
making garments. Okay. I mean, there's this huge history of denim production in North Carolina, both the fabrics and the cutting and sewing. I mean, there was a, there was a sewing factory in every town in Western North Carolina 30, 40 years ago, uh, and now there's, there's not many. But there were a lot of old people that used to work in those factories, and mm. I just got interested in that. And kind of over time, a lot of these ideas about farm-to-table cooking, about the singularity of winemaking, about denim, indigo, the history of denim production in North Carolina, it all just kind of like all those ideas got put into one hat. And it was like, oh, wait, you know, what people are doing with craft beer, what people are doing with smaller coffee producers. I was like, we could do something like that with denim, with the history that's here, like like making something that's of this place, of mm -hmm. North Carolina, of the history of denim, but with a modern kind of spin on details, quality, you know, this kind of principles of winemaking that I was really into, uh, just applying those exact principles to a different medium. And, and that's kind of where we were thinking like, oh, what's the ideal pair of jeans? And I had, you know, some sewing experience making these bags and hats. And one of the summers that I was in Ukraine got so bored. I mean, like, just think like out in the country, there's absolutely nothing to do. There's only like 50 people live in this town. There's nothing around. One day I was just getting so antsy and I was like, ah, and I got my aunt's treadle sewing machine and I fixed it and I went to the town and I bought some fabric and I was like, I'm going to make some pants. I spent a week like tracing a pair of pants that I had, making a pattern, trying to cut and sew these pants on an 18 or early 1900 sewing machine. Um, <laughs> I didn't have anything for the waistband and Sarah had sent me some cookies that were wrapped up in a inch and a half wide baby blue grow green ribbon and that doesn't stretch so I sewed that to the inside of the waistband and that was the first pair of pants I had ever made and then when I got home I was like oh wow I think I could actually do this and I had this pair of pants and Sarah's a very good sewer and and that's kind of where starting to make pants came from. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive 
they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Okay, so I like that. Um, I, I understand the foundation. I kind of get, you know, how your mind is working and how all these things are gelling and why you're in pursuit of the ideal pair of jeans. And then I've read that, you know, you and Sarah started making jeans in your apartment. You had a couple of sewing machines in lieu of a couch and a sofa and a coffee table. And 
you kind of perfected your your patterns in that apartment and that was that the founding of Raleigh Denim? Kind of yeah, but it wasn't our intention to start a company. Um, so yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like are you just there sewing jeans just to make like perfect jeans for yourselves and then yeah. Yeah. okay. No, it was really a personal project. I mean, I get obsessed about things and I want to do them a thousand times so I can learn the details and learn how to hold it and learn the, you know, learning through experience. And, and so I'd make a pair of jeans every single day. Sarah was still at school or in school. I was coaching a soccer team in the evenings and I would sew all day and then I would go coach. And then Sarah and I would look at the, what I was making. We'd take it apart. We'd adjust the pattern. We'd talk about details, this and that. We'd look at other things. And then the next day we do it again, and then again, and then again, and again. And if you do something that many times, you can figure it out. Or we can figure it. I don't know. We figured it out. And after, I don't know, after we had made a couple hundred pairs, we were like, oh, maybe there's something here. Because I, I was wearing them around town, and people were asking, and a couple people started buying them from us. And they're like, oh, maybe this is something. And that was... I don't know, 2007, we started making jeans in like like January 2007 as the project. And then I guess by, God, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> by 2008, we had like moved out of, moved the sewing machines out of the apartment and into this little warehouse with no heat and no windows. And we were like, okay, let's maybe let's give us a little bit of a go. What was the first benchmark or milestone where you guys decided like hey this might be a business and then holy shit it's a business now like yeah. there has to be like an order or something that comes in that like makes it official yeah yeah god we were doing some odd jobs uh we had i think at that point we probably had i don't know four or five sewing machines and we were in this little warehouse with no heat and no windows and making chair covers for a local rental company and we would probably get one pair of custom jeans per month or something like that. It was like, it was just enough to get by. And then the local news did a little 15 second piece about us. And then a couple of people reached out and one guy had a friend who, you know, a friend of a friend lives in New York, used to work in the industry. I started talking with him as a, as a mentor and he was like, you know, what do you want to do with this? And I was like, oh, I want to be in Barney's. Uh, and kind of as a joke, but, but more like in five years. Uh, mm -hmm. And like two weeks later, he called back. He was like, hey, I talked to the buyer at Barney's. She said she'd see you. Oh and my I was God, like, what are you talking what? about? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, we, you know, we never worked for another clothing company. We hadn't, we'd never been to a buying meeting. I had to call a friend of mine who worked in the industry. I was like, what do you, how do you do this? Like, what does a line sheet look like? <laughs> I have a question real quick because jeans are one of those things that a lot of brands make. Were, were this, was there ever a point when you were starting out where you were like, this is never going to work. There's Levi's, there's Gap, there's all these denim companies already. Like what, why are we doing this? What are, what are we doing? Just because I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, why should I make this thing? There's a million of them out there already. And what makes mine special? Or why would people buy mine? Yeah. I think you always have to ask yourself those questions. But in my heart, 
I knew because I was looking for something that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I was looking for something that was higher quality. I was looking for something that made me feel badass. I was looking for something that was made in a way that I wanted to support. I was looking for something that had more history, more teeth, more like just more. I, I wanted I wanted something better and I couldn't find it or I didn't have the means to get it. So so that might have been around, but it was maybe it was in stores that I didn't have access to or at price points that I couldn't dream of. But I wanted more soul and and I knew that what we were doing didn't exist. And whether or not it worked, I think was more like, will this actually work? Will right. people actually pay $300 for a pair of jeans. Like it was more like, is this business model possible? Is this business model sustainable? Can we make a better thing? Will people, you know, pay twice as much for a thing that's five times better? But we were seeing that happen in coffee, in beer, at Whole Foods. Like, you know, if somebody's willing to spend twice as much for an apple, like it does go down the line and, and getting to the higher price points takes a long time, but but the philosophy is there. The the mindset of America is changing or it was changing and, and still is. And I could feel that. I could sense it. I mean we could sense it, not just me, but I mean like it was happening. So when we needed it at such a small scale that that we felt like there was a really good chance we could make it work. So absolutely questioning and, and so I'm glad you had a friend in the garment business that could tell you what a line sheet was and what happens in a meeting. How did that meeting with Barney's go? It was really kind of crazy and strange and terrifying and amazing. The opportunity to meet with them is a thing that we couldn't pass up. And we didn't really have the means to get up there. So I called my dad and I was like, Dad, I have to go to this thing. Can you help us out? Can you help us get there? And I had a cousin in town from Ukraine who was visiting, who didn't speak any English. My dad was like, oh, I bet your cousin, Artyom, would love to see New York. I'll let you borrow my minivan and give you a couple hundred bucks for gas if you take him. And we were like, let's go. So me and Sarah, my cousin, and our intern got in the car and drove all night to New York. And we got to this meeting, and the plan was that I would talk about everything, and Sarah and our intern would be supportive and the buyer just wanted to see the fit and so she gave me the jeans and was like will you go try these on for me and it was like you know down the hallway to the right down another hallway <laughs> to get to a bathroom so Sarah and our intern really ran the meeting and I would come back and show them the jeans and be like wow that looks great and they'd give me the next one and be like okay go try these on and so I ran back and forth four <laughs> times with our four pairs of jeans you know over the course of 15 or 20 minutes and you know, shared as much as I could, but it wasn't how we expected it to go. <laughs> um, and at the end of the meeting, they were like, well, huh, this is interesting, but we don't know yet. We need to show this to everyone else on the team. Can we keep the samples for a couple of days? I'll mail them back. And we were like, okay. But we were kind of demoralized too. We wanted to know. We wanted to know, like, yeah, did they like them? Did they not? You like, drove all some... night. The meeting didn't go as you thought it would. Yeah. They're like, okay, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> and you're yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so we went back to uh, one of our friends lived in Bushwick, and we were going to sleep on his floor. And they ended up calling like four or five hours later. We were about to lay down, and and they called. They said we want it for Beverly Hills and Madison Avenue, and we flipped out and holy shit, screamed and went dancing that night. And <laughs> how yeah, many pieces? Came home. 
How many pieces yeah. did they want? Oh, they wanted 114 pieces, which for us was insanity because we were oh, only my... making like one a day at most. <laughs> um, wow. So what was the next yeah. step? You were like, oh, we've got to get people in here to help make these jeans. Is that kind of how it's it scaled? No, we, we did it. Oh. Um, yeah, we didn't have, we only had five sewing machines at that time and we didn't have a cutting table. We We ended up getting the rolls of fabric and Sarah and I put a pole, you know, it's huge rolls of fabric. They're super heavy. We put a pole through it and we would pick it up and walk it back and forth, back and forth on the concrete truck loading dock. <laughs> and we did all the cutting on a concrete floor <laughs> truck loading dock. And then she and I cut and sewed every single pair and that building didn't have heat. So we had these little space heaters and we were like warming up our fingers and sewing and warming up our fingers and our, our friends and, Family came and helped us, like, in the last final days, iron them and pack them and get them all ready to go. And we got the order out on the very last day. It was January 2009 that we shipped them. Uh, and spring 2009 was the worst retail quarter ever on record. That was, like, financial crisis, all that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so here we are, like, no-name brand with the most expensive gene. <laughs> like in the worst retail quarter ever but they sold and they called us back in a few weeks and and said hey a lot of these sold we need more and we were like more what are you talking about we just spent four months making those and we're like, yeah we need more so we ended up getting hiring two people and we ended up getting a loan because the obama stimulus plan went through um that was the credit crunch we couldn't get money oh um, it actually worked for us. We bought our cutting table with that. We hired our first two people with that. And we got the next order out, which was for six stores. And then paid off that loan like three months later. And then the order doubled again. And then the order doubled again. And, you know, every season we were hiring, building the factory, buying more machines, getting more space. Has it been kind of smooth sailing? Or would you say it's been like steady incrementally, but kind of herky-jerky like an old sewing machine or <laughs> <laughs> I mean because <laughs> because I'm here's what I'm thinking right like you guys are doing something with traditional jeans making techniques and you're in an area that's got kind of a, a wealth of people who might understand that but the industry isn't there anymore to support it right. and so you're trying to scale up but without, you know, tons of money and the economy's not doing great and you've got to communicate to your team about the level of craftsmanship and quality that's required, like, does that happen easily? Tell, tell us about that tricky balancing act. It's a crazy balancing act. I mean, it's, I, I mean, herky-jerky is probably the best. I was laughing at that <laughs> because that's probably the best way to say it. And it's, it's because, like, the jeans-making part of it is is the part that really got us started and the part that we talk most about. But then it's like every other element of running a business, managing people, finances, taxes, workers' compensation, like all these things that we really had no experience in, all the legal parts. I mean, at some point in time, you know, we're getting, yeah, there's just trademarks and uh, we were in You're it. learning on the fly, right? Oh my God. Yeah. All these things that like really worked like in projects of like jumping in that were just projects for me growing up worked really well. And then in business, it's a whole nother story. But 
we were able to find really good mentors and that's really the only way we were able to make it through all, you know, navigate all these different things is that we found really smart people that were able to give us some guidance, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, that knowledge trust season, is. Yeah, yeah. Every season, something new would come up. It'd be a different thing. It'd be a different, huge problem. And and I think it, like a design mentality is is what got us through. It's like, okay, well, here's a problem. How do you solve this problem? We're doing something new, so we have to come up with new solutions. I mean, I think the design of our business model may be the most important thing that we've spent <laughs> design brain time doing. In a way, it wasn't out there in the same, like there wasn't a model to follow. Mm -hmm. We were doing like the sewing apparel brand business model, but upside down and backwards. So we're doing everything the opposite of how people said it should happen. Right. Um, it's not out. more, faster. Uh, yeah. It's better, slower, more detailed, yeah. <laughs> more personal. Exactly. And so how do you track that in production? How do you deal with some people that work faster, some people that work slower? We don't want to pay by the piece because it's about quality. You know, all those things are herky-jerky. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's talk about your creative process because, I mean, you're, the jeans are known for detailed craftsmanship and thoughtful construction. And like you just said, it's about quality, not quantity. And I've watched your – you guys do great branding videos. I've, I've watched them. And it's – what I really love is seeing the pieces that have been out in the world and have mm -hmm. developed their own personality with wear, where the indigo wears off, where the – buttons get a, a shine and I mean it represents so much of American idealism and that pride in process like you've kind of explained to us where it comes from for you how do you communicate that across your team to make sure that it's baked into every piece that goes out into the world I mean, that, that is the challenge um, but one of the things that we do that I really love that I think our team does too is in the beginning, Sarah and I would sign every single pair of jeans that we made because it was our design and our craft. And the, mm -hmm. the design of the process was as important as the design of the product, like how it was made, where it was made, what machines we were using, what every single detail. And a lot of those things we ended up building or modifying ourselves. But for us, it's about our team and we can't do this without our team. We can't, make more we can't make better and i want we wanted everyone on our team to feel that same sense of pride and connection to the process the product that that we are really a, a chain and that every link in the chain is equally important so when people have been with us for a while and they're uh, in the beginning it was if they were as good or better than us at their respective parts mm -hmm. um, we have this ceremony we get the whole company together we give them a Sharpie, and then now they sign their name in the jeans. Uh, and we still do that. It's a way that it's not like it's not about me. It's not about Sarah. It's not about Raleigh Denim. It's about our people, and it's about our team, and it's about our what we're doing with our minds and our hearts and our hands in this place. Like the winemakers, like what they're doing in their vineyard, what they're doing in their winery. Like our workshop is a. I mean, I think of it as it's like magical space that the air in that space is different than the air outside 
not not necessarily better or worse, but it's just like it's ours. Like this mm-hmm. is a thing that we create. This is a heart that we've built. This is a, a machine that we we tend. Being, you know, all of us in that in that arena. Do you think that Sharpie ceremony is a sort of an initiation where the people on the team can take as much pride of ownership and the artistry of the product? Is that a way of sharing the glory? We hope so. I mean, that's that's the idea. That's what we want. And I, I think it works. This many years into it, are you still as passionate about the process? Oh, more so, for sure. I mean, every single day we learn and we see and we test and we're, I mean, Sarah and I are making things every single day uh, in our house, in our, in the shop. We're, I mean, constantly inspired and, you know, with everything that we learn as a company, with everything we learn personally, with the support that we get from, I mean, everyone that wears our thing, you know, the things that we make. Yeah. I I love it. Is Um, is the making of things or the designing of things with are are those your favorite parts of the process or are there other parts that you like what's your favorite part of the whole process right now the i mean making designing modifying fabrics and then editing them i i just worked on a project with a, a friend of mine he's an artist in los angeles named phil america and we laid out like a hundred yards of fabric in the back parking lot and sprayed them with bleach and threw rocks on them and jumped on them and like just kind of destroyed a bunch of fabric and then washed it, cleaned it, ironed it. And then we would lay it out and, and pick the parts that were most interesting. And we would cut out the pieces that actually worked where it showed more contrast, more texture, more beauty of the indigo uh, shade, and then created these flags. He, He does a lot of work with flags. And so we're making three different flags out of those fabrics. Um, that's more, I think that's the thing that like, I really, really love. Sarah's working on this quilt right now um, in, in a similar way. And she, she does a lot more hand stitching and mending. And I think it's a, about this like showing time through the fabric and then through your work with the fabric that's inspiring both of us in very different ways. I mean, the, the work that she's doing is in one direction and what I'm doing is kind of in another, but it's kind of of the same philosophy and it only comes with time. It only comes with working with the material, being around it as long as we have. So it's been 10, 11 years that we've been, you know, completely in this medium and there's still so much to learn. There's still so much to do. We've got indigo vats in our backyard. We, like invite our friends over and have a fire and a you know Fourth of July barbecue and we're all indigo dipping things at the same time. <laughs> well, it's kind of like what you did when you had your friends come over and stomp grapes. This time they come yeah. over and play with denim. <laughs> exactly. No, it's it's true. I mean, we like sit out back and play bocce and <laughs> dye all these different things. It's really, really fun and really beautiful and it's inspiring that there's like still so much to learn so much to do so besides these um artistic projects you have you also have been designing other things aside from jeans you've been working with furniture companies and you've done textiles can you talk about how um those projects came about and what your creative process is in relation to non-pants projects yeah 
we ended up meeting uh, Jerry Helling from Bernhardt Design years ago through a friend of ours, a musician, Tift Merritt. And one day Jerry just, I, we didn't know him. He, he called and he was like, hey, I want to come up to your shop and visit. And he came up and he was like, I want you to design a table for us. And we were like, kind of like shaking our head, like, are you, what, what? And, <laughs> and we were like salivating at the same time because you're like, we love to design all kinds of different things. And like, what an opportunity. And we worked with Jerry directly on that first table. It was called Power Bar and we launched it at Wanted Design. With this huge installation, we brought part of our factory up and some of our people and we were making jeans and worked with an artist, uh, Jefferson Rob, to make some sculptures. It was a really cool and fun thing. But it's a I think we're asking ourselves similar questions about, you know, the obvious like form and function. How do you make a beautiful thing that actually works? Uh, what are the materials? Learning about the finesse of those materials. How can we showcase like uh, how it's made? without like being too obnoxious about it, I guess, in like subtle ways. A lot of the design details in the jeans speak to how we actually make the thing. And it's really subtle, really small. But if you know how to make jeans or things, you notice it. It's a similar set of questions that we then apply to furniture or um, the, the second project that we did with Bernhardt was, was textiles and, and patterns. And Sarah had a lot more to do with that one. She's more graphic-minded than I am. Did your woodworking come into into play in designing Power Bar? Oh, or for sure. Yeah, Because yeah, I'm wondering if you're so intimate with the material, designing furniture is kind of outside of the denim sphere. So yeah, Way outside of the denim sphere, but I, I made furniture for and did a lot of woodworking for years and years and years. So I have a, I don't know, pretty good connection to to what that's like and I was really excited to get back to that I, it had been uh, a few years you know since I had been able to really focus on and be in a wood shop and work so that opportunity was was incredible so we actually are, are launching the third project with them like right now like this this week oh um, that's exciting yeah 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 it's called blueprint it's office it's office table systems they're really 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 pretty um, <laughs> i think they turned out really well um That's exciting. so we like previewed them at icff in in may mm -hmm. but they officially launched for sale like either this week or next week awesome i'm interested in your relationship because you know you're a couple who also runs a business together works together lives together etc do you have any advice for other couples who might want to go into business together <laughs> I think every couple and every dynamic is different and it's hard to give advice. I mean, at, at different times, I mean, I would, I would give you the full range of answers from like, don't ever do this to it is the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, Sarah is an eternally fascinating person to me and she's her perspective on life, on business, on design is is really inspiring and it's fun for me to be around and I get to spend so much time with her probably like multiple lifetimes of time more than if we were working in different places um, and that's for better and for worse I mean when you you, know, you live with someone and 
you know, some days it's the best and some days you're like, ah, I really want my space. And, you know, all those things happen and you have to learn and adapt and, and be sensitive. And, you know, for us, it works and it's not easy, but it's. What would Sarah say is your greatest asset or strength? She probably would say something about my ambition or energy. And what would you say about her? Whew. I don't know if I can say one thing. There's so many. I mean, her... Yeah, just rattle off a few. <laughs> she has a, a, a way of creating beauty that I, is different than... I mean, her, her lens of, of beauty and what she can actually make and create is different than anything I've ever seen. And her ability to see something in her mind and then actually create it to see a thing that doesn't exist in the world in her mind and then make it is, it's not anything I've ever been able to do and not anything I've ever seen. Um, it's pretty magical. It is. It, it, it feels magical. That's actually, and that's, this is what we're drawn to design and making for. It feels creating and making things that didn't exist. feels magical. It feels powerful. It's, well, it is, it is empowering. I think not only do you have the power to manipulate the material world because you understand the physics of the different materials and the machines and all that's needed to kind of construct things, whether it's a garment or furniture, but you have the power to take something from an idea into reality. And I think that's something that can't be outsourced or automated and is an incredibly valuable skill set. Yeah, I agree. So, but along the way of taking something that doesn't exist into making it something that does exist, even if it's, you know, we can say that genes existed long before you did, but the ideal pair of genes in your image didn't. <laughs> right. But along the way from taking something from zero to everything, there are usually a lot of learning curves and big problems. Yeah. Do you have a method for tackling those or for demystifying things that you don't know? Or, or is it just a matter of biting off small chunks and chewing it thoroughly? Like, how does that work for Victor? It's so or for hard. the Victor and Sarah team, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it's for us, like, we have to be completely wide eyed and honest with ourselves, with each other in a way that is hard to describe. Like, uh, maybe that's being, like, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. We're really good at it, but we're not the best, and we're not as good as we're going to be. We miss things. We're human. Uh, we mess things up. You know, when those things aren't right, we have to call them out, and we can't be blind to, like, because it's going to take another million hours, or we're going to have to undo all the work that we did, or something like if it's not right it's not right and if sarah tells me that i need to be able to say like take a deep breath and be like oh shit you're right like okay that sucks or for us we lean a little bit closer to this what this problem is and dig deeper and that's that's a hard path it's a hard road but i feel like every time we've identified some hard thing and dug in deeper harder more the things that we learn are the things that you can't read about. They're the things that I can't share in words. They're the, um, like the understanding of that thing that we have 
after we get through that process is is greater than if one of our mentors told us about it. I think I get what you're saying. It's like a mentor can tell you about an obstacle you might encounter. But until you encounter that obstacle and figure out how to dismantle it, it's going to keep appearing on your path and you're either Mm going to go around it, not really understanding it, or you're going to get into it, tinker with it, figure out how to dismantle it, and then it won't keep reappearing because now you understand it in intimate detail. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just about going around it. It's like you can go around it once or twice, but then it like can take you down. <laughs> right, right, right. And you spend a lot of energy and time in avoidance. <laughs> yeah. I think they call that radical acceptance. It's sort of like don't don't keep running away from your fears. You got to just sort of face them, see them for what they are. And it's it's not brute force. It's more like yeah, just understanding what it is you're up against and and being willing to deal with all the parts of it yeah, and to smooth it out. I don't know. Anyway, it sounds like you guys are working it out. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> um, I want to know what's in the cards for you, you personally as a couple, or you just you as Victor or Raleigh Denham in the future. Um, and I'm not talking about like, right now but i mean like long-term future me too i want to know too (laughs) what do you want like what do you what would be like a dream for you guys to design together or what would be like the coolest thing you would want to do yeah i was i've been thinking a lot about this and i want more impact and, and i haven't figured out exactly what that looks like yet or how to do that i think that what we're doing is like is really good. Like, I think it's like good in like a quality sense and then a, they were doing good work, but it's only accessible by a few people. And that kind of keeps me up at night sometimes. So I've been looking around for places that we can have more impact, both in volume or price or like things that actually could change the world or could change the industry. We, we made one gene we ended up working with some farmers and grew the very first crop of certified organic cotton ever grown in North Carolina. I was able to convince the cotton gin, the spinning mill, the weaving mill to all like run this fabric for us. And we made the first, I mean, a a gene with the smallest carbon footprint of any gene that I know of on earth. And from the first crop of certified organic cotton, now the thing is super expensive, but it's like, proof of concept is there. It's like, no, we can do this. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what? Can we do this with Patagonia? Can we do this with Wrangler? Can we do this with, you know, other companies that have a greater reach? That's kind of where, that's where my head is. So like, I don't, I don't know exactly what that looks like or I haven't figured it out. So if you or your listeners have ideas, I'm all ears. I want to hear. <laughs> I feel like we've got, I think we're, I feel really excited about the next five years that we've kind of, spent a lot of time and a lot of energy building the team, building the factory, building the mm-hmm. brand. And and now we've got this like amazing opportunity to to harness some of that energy, some of the design space, some of the making knowledge to just do do more. I mean I think it's gonna be in I really appreciate 
not to cut you off, sorry, but I mean, I really appreciate that you've spent so much time and energy building the ideal pair of jeans that's made in the ideal way. And instead of figuring out how to sell more pants to more people, you're trying to figure out how to reverse engineer the supply chain to make it better all the way from the ground up. It sounds lofty when you say it. Yeah, no, but I'm into it. Do it. <laughs> you can save the world, Victor. You and Sarah with your pants. Oh. I think that's what manufacturing has an obligation and a responsibility to do in the modern age. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I like that that's where your head is. That's how you're thinking about it. And the proof of concept is the beginning. And uh, now we've put it out there in the universe. Listeners, do your thing. <laughs> Bring it in. Make it happen. <laughs> And then I also want to design other things. Yeah, like what? What would be like Everything. the coolest Anything. thing? I mean, not the coolest thing. I don't know. I mean, we we got to work with OMA uh, on our New York store, and thinking about architecture uh, was a really fascinating and fun part of our mm. brain uh, that I'd like to use more. But also, <laughs> like dishes and like home things. Uh, I'm. I don't know. I'm interested in making in anything, everything. I love Sorry, it. not a good answer, no, but that's what I it think is. That's, <laughs> I think that is like the best designer answer. Because <laughs> most designers, they just always want to design as much or as many things as they can be just because they love design. Yeah. Um, so besides the project that you have that's available through Bernhardt, what else are you working on? What's coming up for you that you want our listeners to know about? The things that we have coming up are really Raleigh denim focused. Um, yeah, do you have like new pants coming out? Yeah, and it's we've had this really profound shift in our business in the past year or two by putting some effort into our our website, really thinking about nurturing our current clients, and it's allowed us to design a lot more interesting things than we have in the past because a lot of people that follow what we're doing and that are into what we're doing. They also want to learn. They also want something different. They they already have a couple pairs of our jeans or, or something that, you know, they're great, but they want something different and new. And and so we're finding all these new fabrics. We're developing new fabrics. We're doing, like, finding these things that feel really nerdy and making really small runs of them, 10 pieces, 20 pieces, and offering those to just people that are on our list. And it's been so much fun because we've been able to take kind of ideas and make them into finished things and get them to people that actually are really into it on a consistent basis. And it's it's kind of what we always dreamed of, and it's actually happening. Ooh. Well, how do you get on that list? Oh, at our website, rallydenimworkshop.com. <laughs> and uh, where can we see all of these things that you're talking about? Do you do you post them on your Instagram? Can we find yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, we post it on the Instagram. And I'm spending a lot of time writing stories about fabrics or constructions or different new products that we're making uh, on our newsletter, which I'm hoping is interesting and useful to the people that sign up. That, that's so is the, the central location to keep tabs on everything RaleighDenimWorkshop.com? Yeah. Well, Victor, it's amazing what you're doing. Thank you so much for (laughs) for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I really, really, it's an honor to be here. I'm really grateful. Thank you. (laughs) 
sounded like he had a lot of adventures before starting Raleigh Denim. I mean, spending all that time in Europe, and then he was in New York, and he made wine, and he worked as a chef, and he was a, a soccer player. <laughs> yeah, he was into a lot of things. I, I love it. I love that he took all of that energy. And instead of, you know, stressing himself out, <laughs> he, uh, put, he funneled it into making and doing and learning. Well, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about that I thought was really interesting is he had all this energy and and he also had kind of an obsessive tendency that was that enabled him to kind of focus this energy into learning to make wine, bread, hats and bags and the perfect pair of jeans. Like I think a lot of times people squander that energy, it gets spread out or sometimes in a higher cost of living city type situation, it gets sucked up by just the effort it takes to live in a city like that. Right. I thought it was really interesting that he knew right away that he was going to marry Sarah. And that, I know, that's such a cute story. It's such a cute story, but I mean, the the kismet of meeting not only your future wife, but your future business partner and creative mm-hmm. collaborator. How does I I had to go through a lot of people before I understood <laughs> how valuable, you know, like how how to I don't know. Like it's just an incredibly complex thing to I don't know meld your identities like that and still have distinct autonomous identities which they do yeah and I also think that it's a certain type of couple that can work together and live together and have a life together because that probably wouldn't work with me and my husband (laughs) um so I, I respect and admire what they've got going on. But I think it, it's it's about a partnership, right? So you think about it like any other business partnership. You each have your strengths and you work together, but there's a, a profound amount of respect that you have to have for the other person and their opinions. And there's trust that needs to be mm-hmm. there. So I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, sometimes it's natural that you work with a partner because you already trust them and you already value them and value their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was really crucial what he said about how fascinated he is by her and how she has this gift for uh, this lens for beauty that he doesn't have because he sort of understands that she brings something to the table that he never could. Not that he couldn't develop his own lens for beauty. I'm just saying it's different than his. And and he also acknowledged that she probably appreciates in him his his ambition. And so, I mean, just to make a sewing machine reference here, if somebody is the motor and somebody else is the stitch, that can work really, really well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I can't imagine the amount of work that goes into building a business like they've built. I mean... I don't think they could have really done it anywhere other than a place like Raleigh, first of all. Second of all, I feel like they must have good instincts because, you know, building a factory and and being able to try to get people who work for you to understand your vision when your vision is so focused on quality and handcrafted product, um, 
And then to also have to deal with all the other stuff that's business related, like marketing and accounting and contracts and insurance and HR and just all of those things. I mean, it's an incredible amount of things to have to learn and manage, especially if you never went to school for those kinds of things. Right. I mean, he did have a, a business background from school a little bit, but, you know, not not out in the world. And it's one thing to learn those things, but learning them while other people's livelihoods are attached must be incredibly stressful because you're making those mistakes and those mistakes are not just impacting you and your business. They're impacting mm-hmm. other people who show up to work and expect a certain sort of a certain sort of protocol. And so I I don't know, it's just got to feel so stressful to be undergoing those growing pains as a business while other people are kind of having their livelihoods impacted and, you know, helped and stressed by the same growing pains. Yeah, but I do admire that they created the business in Raleigh and they work with a lot of the local mills and farmers and companies. I think that they have a very noble mission, um, not only to support the community that they're in um, and to carry on the tradition of of handcrafting products, but, um, or making things in general, but that they care about that whole process from the, from even where it starts with the farmers, where the, where the product comes from, what the material is, how it's made all the way up to the finished product. Yeah, and I love that, you know, that they're responding to the heritage of Raleigh itself. Right. Yeah. And their pants tell a story. (laughs) They tell a story both in the craftsmanship and detailing and the heritage and the agriculture of where they're born. But then after, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little, like, I love relationships with objects. But then after they're transferred to somebody else, a customer, they start to tell the story of that customer in their lines of wear, in the way the patterns start to show up on the jeans, in the creases behind the knee, in the wallet fading, in the knee, you know, wear. And I love the way jeans kind of tell the story of your daily migrations, your daily actions that way. And they show up on you like a patina of hard work. Yeah, and I think that's what they... That's the probably the customer I think that they're going for with these pants because, you know, you could buy two pair of jeans for what these one pair of Raleigh denim jeans costs, or maybe even three, depending on where you shop. But I think they're looking for the customer that buys a pair of jeans and really cares about that pair of jeans and wears it religiously. And, you know, it does wear like that. Mm-hmm. And it is a long-term commitment. It's an heirloom-type object. I mean, not that they would pass it down, but I remember getting my dad's jeans after he had been done with them, you know, uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was like, these are cool, you know, with the faded pockets where his wallet was and, you know, that it's lived in and loved. And, um, you know, he moved on and then he gave them to me. And it feels, you put them on and it feels homier. Mm-hmm. Or you have that pair of jeans that like now has all your memories attached to it. Like, oh, I wore these to that concert or, oh, I remember making out with so-and-so in the backseat of, you know, 
Right. In the backseat of Roger's van. <laughs> oh, man. I had this one pair of jeans when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I swear, I don't know what happened to them either. I think they must have ripped like from knee to knee, like so bad that I couldn't wear them anymore. But I wore them. I It must have been all four years. And they're my favorite, favorite jeans ever. And I still, to this day, will see pictures of myself from high school and be like, man, I wish I still had those jeans. I remember in the eighth grade, I was bullied by a girl who kept saying she was going to beat me up after school. And so at the beginning of every day, she would spread the the news that she was wearing her beat up jeans because she was totally prepared to like pummel her me beat after up school. jeans? Yeah. <laughs> And what does that even mean? I, that's what I thought. And so I like totally diffused the bully situation. But then I became fascinated with the idea of beat up jeans. And I'm like, yeah, you got different kinds of jeans for different activities. I mean, I've heard of like painting pants. <laughs> yeah. You know, or like these are my gardening pants, but not beat up jeans. But that's that's funny. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's it's mean spirited, but it's also like right. and yeah. it's tough. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah beat up jeans i guess you need to be able to move in them and then you need to be kind of sturdy i feel like everybody's probably have like a story about a pair of jeans or a you know one pair that they absolutely loved or the ones that made their butt look perfect or whatever it is yeah i call those my space pants because <laughs> my ass is out of this world Thanks for listening. To see images of Raleigh Denham's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you would please do us a favor and rate and review Clever. It really helps a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Jenny Josephson and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.